happened. There it is. First slider. Check that the mute was off. Testing one, two, testing one, two. You got stuff there? Did you turn the mic on? Because it was on.
Good morning. Good morning. Here this morning. Hope you had a blessed Christmas. Let's look at our announcements. Offerings in the offering box, of course. Andrea's number. Days of praise and acts and facts are on the table in the foyer. No evening service tonight. Uh, most of you have the details for Ida's uh, viewing on your phone, but that's Wednesday from 4 to 8, um, and on Thursday from 10 to 11 a.m. Uh, at Muir Brothers in Emily City, and the funeral then at 11, and the luncheon will follow the uh, follow service. Did we get a location for that yet? Okay. Yeah. Okay. me there dear no it's it sounds pretty good I'll lean in Thank you very much. Um, Brandon's mom has just been admitted to the hospital. Um, I know that she has some issues, but I don't know why she's there. Um, so keep her in your prayers. And he left to find out what, what's going on. So. Anything else that I've admitted this morning? All right, let's uh, read Romans in the 8th chapter, verses 10 through 15. Um, that's 1757 in the Pew Bible.
stand together and ask the Lord to bless us. George, would you mind? Will you take your red hymnal of the Trinity and turn to 194, 194 in the red.
Your turn. Anyone? I can't see your fingers because you're spelling fingers. No, yeah, yeah, I can't see them. Lydia, do you have a hymn? Okay. That's a no. Oh, Christmas. The piano player says it has to be Christmas. Andrew, you were two weeks ago. Andrew, do you still have that same hymn? I'm going to put you on the spot. Two weeks ago, I, I um, Sheila beat you. Miss and Mrs. McLeod beat you. Do you have a Christmas hymn, Andrew? Joy to the world. Good one. And it is, let's see. I'm looking. Um, 195. In the red. On one page, I'll run. I just turned the page. Isaac went to 
Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to save my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill him because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 145? 145 in the brown. <clears throat>
Our scripture text is Genesis 26. Last, <clears throat> the last Lord's Day we considered the beginning of Isaac and Rebekah's family as the next generation born with the offspring of Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Rebekah both prayed. She was barren, the result being that there were twins in her womb. They were combatants even before they were born. The scripture talks about them fighting each other in the womb. They represented two nations, a godly shoot and an evil shoot, both destined to be at war with one another all their days, and I might say right up to the present time. The Arab nations fighting against Israel. Esau, as the firstborn, should have been the leader of the clan, but we study that he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. Who does something like that? God answers. So Esau despised his birthright. That's who does something like that. Hebrews 12, verse 16 says he despises inheritance rights. In our colloquialism, we would say he gave away the farm for a bowl of soup. That tells you he had a pretty low estimation of what he was There was a great contrast in character between these two men. Esau was a hunter, a man of the open field. Jacob was a stay-at-home boy who did house chores and cooking. Isaac and Rebekah both showed favoritism. Isaac towards Esau because he was a skilled hunter. He put venison on the table. Rebekah loved Jacob because... He was at home all the time. He was great help around the kitchen, the house. And so favoritism developed, and it split family loyalties right down the middle. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. The lessons we learned is that God is in control of the world sees to it that his people prevail. Secondly, those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Esau was the firstborn, and God rejected him. Thirdly, every child is unique in personality and ability. God's gift to you is to love each child for their particular gifts and skills. Not to show favoritism. And the fourth lesson, and so important, don't settle for soup. Genesis 26, 
when you own the estate. So many people do that. Today's study brings before us a rather disheartening event in which Isaac fell into the same sin of his father, Abraham. And so I've entitled this, Like Father, Like Son. Let's pray as we come and study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truthfulness of it. We don't see the Bible washing over and hiding the sins of your people. It just tells the truth like it is. And that is refreshing at the same time that it is discouraging to see that we're no better at times than the people of the world. Our energies are sometimes just as selfish. Just as egotistical. We see that in these two men in the family of Abraham. Sarah. We ask, Lord, that you'll teach us the lessons for our own hearts. These Old Testament saints were people just like us. We could say that we're just like them. And so we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need your cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ, as did they. Bless our study today. Be with those that are fighting illnesses. Lord, we have seen a lot of that this year. Pray, Lord, for even the events that we've heard about today. And Brandon had to run off. So we pray, Lord, that you'll be with his mother, whatever's going on. We praise you, Lord, for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the subject, like father, like son, from the Genesis count. <clears throat> Of chapter 26. The first thing we note is that there is a repeat of circumstances, but there are different outcomes that come along here. Verse 1 There was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. Now, that's, I'm glad that's in there. That gives us a ge- geographical and climate. Uh, tag for what's going on here. It's not the same famine, but there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. This shouldn't surprise us. We're talking about an arid area in geography. We're talking about desert sun and a little bit of water. God, of course, controls all of that. The famine in Abraham's time is recorded in chapter 12, verse 10, which reads, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now in Isaac's day, our text says, verse 1, 
There was a famine in the land, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Gerar is part of the Negev, or the southern Palestine. If you have a Bible map on your Bible, find the Dead Sea on your map. Place your finger at the middle of the lake, the Dead Sea Lake. Run your finger due west, and you'll come to Gerar. This city was well within the perimeters of the promised land, whereas Egypt was not. So what I am saying is that unlike his father, with his trial of a famine, Isaac remained in Palestine. How come? Verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. So this is a heads up for Isaac. Did Abraham never have? Isaac actually receives a verbal command from God not to go down to Egypt. The negative is, don't do this. Don't do this. But also he received a positive verbal command, stay in this land for a while, verse 3. And what incentives, if any, would Isaac receive if he obeyed. Verse 3, I will be with you, and I will bless you, God says. In other words, you need not go to Egypt to receive escape famine and receive preservation from starvation. I'll bless you right here where you are. With food and water and all the necessities to survive, the hard times. And in addition to the physical blessings, note verse 3, I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham, and that oath, oath is spelled out in verse 4, I will make you de- your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you will give them all these lands, and through your offerings, all nations on earth, Excuse me, through your offspring, all your nations on earth will be blessed. This is practically a verbatim statement to the Abrahamic covenant. And we read verse 6, So Isaac stayed in Gerar. He believed God's promises. He stayed put where he was. Isaac had been given directions by God that Abraham had not. When God did direct Abraham to move, you remember, he told him to go to the land which God would reveal to him later. Kind of nebulous. Isaac was in Gerar, verse 1, and God said, stay in this land for a while, verse 3. Both decisions, one by Abraham, the other by Isaac, required faith in God's word to act. 
Neither required more faith than the other person. When it comes to acting, God's people are called to act on God's say-so. So Isaac, no less than his father, was a man of faith. And I like that. Yes, the circumstances were a bit different. The outcomes were a bit different. One, Abraham went to Egypt. Isaac is told, don't you do that. Just stay put where you are, and he did. But both men, you see, are trusting God in what they're to do. Secondly, there is a repeat of unbelief with the same consequences. Rebekah drew the attention of the Philistines, and when they inquired of Isaac, he, like his father Abraham, lied, saying, oh, um, verse 7, she's my sister. And the reason he lied is the same reason Abraham gave about Sarah to the Egyptians. He thought, verse 7, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. You can check your Bible, Genesis 12, verse 11 and 12. It's the same thing with Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's beauty resulted in her being conscripted into Abimelech's harem, and Rebekah's beauty resulted in her being conscripted into Abimelech's harem. This is a different Abimelech, by the way. He's the son or grandson of the other Abimelech of Abraham's lifetime, chapter 20. So we got like father, like son. Same thing's going on here. This word beautiful in the Hebrew means pleasant to the eyes. King James Version says fair to look upon. Agreeable to the senses. By the way, this term agreeable is one of the favorite descriptions of Jane Austen in her romance novels. The word means beautiful. It's used to describe Sarah in chapter 12 or 11. And it's almost always translated fair from a word meaning bright in terms of illumination. Fair-skinned, light in color, you see. An oddity in these Oriental cultures, but something that caught the attention of the men. Fair-skinned. So either way you slice it, both Sarah and Rebecca were women of stunning beauty, and God is not timid about saying so. Puts it right in his book. Abraham's lie about Sarah was discovered when God judged the Philistines with infertility. You remember that account. 
Isaac's lie about Rebekah was discovered when Abimelech Jr., verse 8, looked down from his window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. ESV says, showing endearment towards Rebekah. A form of affection which would not be appropriate if Rebekah was his sister. It's short of intimacy sexually. But nonetheless, there's an intimacy there that doesn't compute with somebody that's just your sister. So Abimelech knew immediately that Rebekah was not Isaac's sister. And so he summoned Isaac to give an account. Come over here. We need to talk. And he said, she is really your wife. He put it right to him. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac's response was the same as that of his father Abraham when he was caught in the lie. Verse 9. I thought I might lose my life on account of her. What is this you've done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Can you Hebrews think beyond yourself? Can you not think of the consequences of your actions? I think that's good for all of us to ask. Of ourselves. What we do, where we go, what we say has consequences. And people are watching us. You can't just dismiss it and say, oh well. No, not oh well. God holds us accountable for our testimonies. And so Bimelech was right when he says, what is it that you've done to us? You brought guilt upon us. There are unplanned consequences to conduct that are not always foreseen. That's true. But they're there. And they're real. Isaac was just trying to spare his neck from what he can strewed as his own murder. I mean, if the men of Gerar take note of Rebekah and they want her by any and all means, he is projecting the worst that could happen and then he acted on that fantasy. They're going to kill me to get her. More importantly, he did not act on God's promise. Verse 3, I will be with you and I will bless you. Wow. Did he forget that real quick? Verse 3, he forgot that that quick. 
Doesn't God promise even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? I will be with you. Okay, then why then did God... Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. What? Do you get the significance of this? God made a promise to Abraham long, long time ago before he ever made a promise to Isaac. Nothing is about to change God's mind concerning those promises. Sin notwithstanding on Isaac's part, God's word will prevail. Jesus put it this way, so we should take this to heart from our Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. Luke wrote it this way. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke or pen to drop out of the law. The word of God. Luke 16, verse 16 and 17. Boy, if anything, that just tells us right up front, God is attached to his word. You've heard the expression, my word is my bond. That's a human expression. God is saying something very similar. I said it. I meant it when I said it. I made a promise. I'm not a liar. I'm not going back on my word. I'm not forgetting my promises. This is as certain as anything in creation. When we have dealings with men, I mean, think about this. Contracts, promises, agreements. The burning questions arising in our minds is this. Hmm. Can I trust what this person is saying? Is this a man of his word? And our skepticism is well-founded because honesty is not a highly prized commodity in today's society. When David was in deep distress, he wrote this. The cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came upon me, and I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. And then I called out on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. When I was in great need, he did save me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord 
has been good to you. I believed. Therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. Psalm 116, verse 3 and following. God uses David's experience to make a point. When the king was in trouble and destruction was looming on the horizon, to whom did he make his appeal and why? David appealed to the Lord. Well, why didn't he call on his allies? You know, the other nations that were his allies. Because all men are liars, that's why. When push comes to shove, they cannot be trusted to keep their promises and to support their alliances. There's the added warning in Scripture that God's people are not to look to men. We are not to look to machinery to preserve them in times of danger. Isaiah 31, the prophet issues this warning. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men. They're not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. I'm reading scripture. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey. And though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. I was watching a geographic program on YouTube about lions. I was watching these nationals, natives, doing a lion hunt. Coming against a lion, a male lion, you know, that has they have the big collar around their neck. Coming against him with spears and swords. That lion was not scared of them one bit. There must have been a half a dozen. And they're, you know, they're circling him and they're jumping up and down and they're taking the spear and sticking it in the ground. And then they pull it out and they do this towards the lion. He just stood his ground. God goes on to say, like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and he will rescue it. Return to him. You have so greatly revolted against him, O Israel. 
Isaiah 31, the first six verses. The point of all this is that God made a promise to Abraham, whose response was faith and obedience. Verse 5, Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, my laws. And so Isaac is securely protected and preserved as part of those covenant promises. God cannot go back on his word. His integrity is trustworthy and it's superior to men's in that honesty and integrity and truthfulness, being faithful to his word, are all part, get it now, of God's character. That's what he is. He can't deny what he is. He can't undo what he is. Paul assures us, if we, we men, we are faithless. Wouldn't that go along with David? All men are liars. Yeah. So Paul says, if we are faithless, God will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. Second Timothy 2.13 God cannot, he cannot renounce or change who he is. Faithful is what he is. He can't undo that. You say, I thought God could do anything. No, he can't do anything that is contrary to his very nature, what he is. You can't either. Whatever you are by nature, that's what you will do. Trouble with us is we change. Or maybe that's a good thing because we can learn to repent and change the way we think, thus the way we do. But you know another characteristic of God is he can't change. So here we're thinking, well, maybe God can change and then, boy, we're in trouble. No, he can't change. See, I thought God could do anything. Well, you're wrong. He cannot go against being righteous. He cannot become evil. He cannot change his mind. Think about it. Why would he ever change his mind? He knows the end from the beginning. So he can't go, oh, I was surprised by that. I didn't know that. What's going to happen? Oh, well, I'll have to change my mind. I'll have to change my thinking. on. We do that all the time. Because we are creatures of time space. And we cannot control all of the circumstances that surround an action. But God does not have that problem. Again, Moses puts it this way. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Asks Moses. Does he promise and not fulfill? 
Numbers 23, 19. Through the prophet Malachi, God declared, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Wow, think about that. Malachi 3, 6. And in verse 5, he lists their great sins. Sorcery, adultery, perjury, those who defrauded laborers of their wages, those who oppressed the widows and the fatherless, those who deprived aliens of justice. But do not fear me. Look at all those sins. Any one of them is enough justification for God to wipe them off the map. But he made certain promises. And keep his word. I see enough sin in any of any one of these to damn us all to hell. For God to lock us in the abyss and throw away the key. But because God is a person of his word and has made promises of forgiveness that are in Christ, all nations on earth will be blessed. Verse 5. We're not destroyed. Isaac's sin, nor the sins of our own hearts, will ever destroy us if we are of the faith of Abraham. Not because of us, but because of God's unchangeable righteousness. Now, what can we take to heart from this account? Number one, when trials arise in life, do not assume that the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. Both in the case of Abraham and that of Isaac, we are told there was famine in the land. Yes, right. Hebrew here is dearth of food resulting in extreme hunger. Yeah. It's not the word used by Esau when he called, or excuse me, when he claimed to be famished, you remember that, needed to eat some of Jacob's stew right now, right now. I'm famished. The word means simply, I'm faint, I'm weary. A famine then, as you all know, is the result of no rain. Crops, like all living things, need water to thrive. California has experienced in the past droughts that last for years there. And that has wreaked havoc on the produce and the livestock industry of our country. And the state uses more than 80% of its water reserves in those times. More than 80%. So lakes fall to new lows. And when that has happened, guess what? They found abandoned cars at the bottom of those lakes. Whole towns in the bottom of those lakes. 
even gold at the bottom of those lakes. We're adding new gold rush. But people and livestock can't drink gold. California, along with Florida, comprises the breadbasket of America, producing the lion's share of produce. This in part is why food prices on the national level are so high (coughs) when things aren't going well in those two states. What is the unusual response to something as catastrophic as a regional drought which causes a famine? Well, Abraham traveled out of the country to Egypt. Isaac remained in Gerar. It's very likely that Isaac would have followed Abraham's course of action, except for the one thing, verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go to Egypt. Okay. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. Verse 2. Verse 6. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. He was obeying the Lord. Human nature being what it is, we will usually try to assuage any trial that makes our lives miserable by looking for a way out, even a trip to a more pleasant surrounding than that of remaining in a parched land, characterized by dried up wells and water holes that are dried up and accompanied by shriveled crops and emaciated livestock. Who's going to want to live in a place like that? All of this is our human ingenuity kicking in. But because it is based on human wisdom and not God's, the trip to greener pastures may prove even more horrendous than if we just stayed put. Remember this happened with Naomi and her husband? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, his two sons, went to Moab to live there. Ruth 1, verse 1. What happened in Moab? Well, Naomi's husband died. Each of her two sons died. One of them who was married to Ruth. So here she was, living in a foreign country, with two widowed daughters-in-law and no blood relatives to aid her in her distress. Why would Elimelech leave Bethlehem, whose name means the house of bread and praise, why would he leave Bethlehem for Moab, the land of Lot's incestuous offspring with his daughters, you remember, and thus he was cursed? Well, he was looking for greener pasture, but... It didn't turn out that way. Alone and destitute, Naomi traveled back to Bethlehem, and when she arrived, the people recognized her as Naomi, and she told them, however, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, sweet. She told them, call me Mara. That name means bitter. She told him why. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and following. Now if it's harvest time, it means the crops were growing for some time. And now they needed to be harvested. What compelled Naomi to return home to Bethlehem? Ruth 1 verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home. She heard the news. Oh. Something is happening. Some good things are happening in Palestine. Maybe it's time for me to get back home. In other words, the grass was not greener on the other side. They all. Moab was a terrible experience for Elimelech and Naomi. The moral of the story is stay where God places you unless there's clear indications to move. Secondly, promises, while not given directly to succeeding generations, become binding at God's discretion. So what do you mean by that? How come a promise made to Abraham is applicable to Isaac? Isaac wasn't even born when God spoke to Abraham. Huh. We could reason, and with some merit, I think, that Isaac was included in God's promises because God's promises had sweeping implications which went beyond Abraham and Sarah personally. Genesis 13, verse 15 and following is one example. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring. Oh, forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Genesis 3.15 and following in chapter 12, verse 3 says, All people on earth will be blessed through you. Text, our text, verse 4, to Isaac. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? So this is a clear indication that what God promised Abraham, he also promised Isaac. But how does that pan out in our day with us? We're not even Jewish. But we do comprise part of the all peoples of the earth, destined to be blessed. So that's one answer. But there's a second answer, and a more important consideration. And that is God's interpretation of what it meant by Abraham's and Isaac's offspring. 
Let me read it for you. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Wow, that's odd. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or counted. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. There's the promise. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verse 6 and following. This interpretation of what God meant by the promised seed agrees with Galatians 3, verse 7 and following, where Paul writes, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. See, how are you going to count the children? Those who believe. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. I'm reading scripture. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 29, Galatians 4. If you belong to Christ, I'm reading scripture. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I didn't say it. God said it. Not just physical Jews, but the believers. See, brethren, we do not have to extrapolate promises made to the patriarchs and to Israel for ourselves as though they belong to us. So we just decided to take them for ourselves. No, we rest on God's own application of such to claim the promises. His oaths are extended to people whose faith is in Christ the Savior. He is that seed that was promised to not Isaac. Paul says that in Galatians. The third lesson here is that the legacy we pass on to our children can be good or evil. And that's why I entitled this message, Like Father, Like Son. Whatever we give in terms of inheritance can be either good or evil. As Christian parents, we strive to be good examples to our children, but sometimes we fail. And what they learn from us is how to sin. You've all seen little children mimicking a parent. Dad slurps his soup from the bowl, and Junior does the same thing. He wants to be like Dad. Mother's very particular 
about how her hair looks. So little Miss Sunshine wants to do the same, standing in front of the mirror. Good habits, bad habits, the children pick up on them all. Isaac learned how to deceive King Abimelech Jr. concerning Rebekah by observing how Abraham had done the same with regard to Sarah. And the consequences were similar. Sin is an easy mimic to acquire because we're all born with our parents' sinful culture and nature. Genesis 5.3 makes this stunning comparison. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, sinful likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Far cry from Adam, who had been created in the image of God, but fully compatible with fallen Adam, who sinned against God's Directive, Seth inherited that image. The beauty side of the scenario like father, like son, is that parents who have been renewed in Christ, forgiven of their sin, can also be a powerful force for good in their children's lives. Praise the Lord. In these endeavors, they live out the spiritual, filial relationship that they have with God, whose nature has been instilled within them through the new birth. Paul writes it this way, But if Christ is in you, then your body's dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to this sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verse 10 and following. The point here is this. Is this. If God is our spiritual father, the principle, like father, like son, is also applied. Also applied. So let us realize that an example of faith can be passed on to our children as well as any example of sin. John writes it this way, No one who is born of God will continue to sin Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. 1 John 3, verse 9, verse 10. So the implication is this. When you do whatever, do what is right. And when you do what is right, you're evidencing that you're a child of God. If you do love your brother, then love your brother. And that demonstrates that you're like God who loves the brethren. Your actions will tell who your father is. Be he the devil, we're God. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Why would he tell them that? Because they acted out demonic ways, trying to kill the Messiah of God. Isaac mimicked his father's sin by lying to King Abimelech about Rebekah. But he also mimicked his father's faith in God by obeying God's directive to stay in Gerar and trust God to bless him and prosper him right there. As sinners, we will sometimes lead our children to adopt sinful practices. But let it be our chief ambition that the mimicking of our behavior would be to imbibe our love of righteousness and faith in our kids. In this way, we are not only blessed, but we are a blessing to others. So here's my question in closing. What is your legacy that you're leaving to your kids? Is it a legacy of faith? Or is it a legacy of disobedience? I hope it's a legacy of faith. Because guess what? If they're unchurched, they're not getting it from the world. They're not learning about God from the world. Anything the world has to say about God will be a distortion. You can be sure of that. It'll be a downright lie. It'll be a distortion of the devil. Jesus says of the devil, there's no truth in him. No truth. When he speaks a lie, Jesus said, he speaks his native tongue because he is a liar. And that's what liars speak. But of Jesus, he could say, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And no man comes before the Father except through me. Like Father, like Son. See and hear me, said Jesus. You're getting a glimpse of the Father. Philip said, show us the Father. Oh, when it'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, Philip, come on. Have I been so long with you and yet you do not know me? 
who has seen me has seen the Father. They're one and the same. Our Lord, we just pray that you will grant us the faith that we need. Our great model is the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will bless us with him being that mentor in our life, that go-between, to be sure, but also that model of righteousness. You told your disciples that if they have seen you, they have seen the Father. So we could ask the question, well, what's God like? Lord, tell us what God is like. We'd like to know. And you come back with the answer, look at my son, hear him, see him, obey him. So true. The Jews thought Jesus was blaspheming your name, Lord, because you said that. But you were not blaspheming at all because you are the son like the Father. I pray that we will be sons and daughters of you and that we will represent you in a godly way. To the praise and glory of the gospel, the praise and glory of righteousness and forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Our closing hymn is number one. In the hymnal, number one. We'll stand as we sing.
pray together. Our Father, our joy truly is found in Christ. The blackness of our sin, our disobedience, we see not only in the lives of these historic Old Testament saints, but in our own lives. As the Word of God mirrors back to us what we are in our natural state. We seek your forgiveness this day. We ask your blessing upon us. We thank you, your grace is sufficient to cover us and to forgive us from all of our sin and unrighteousness. We're so thankful. We praise you, Lord, for the lives of these Old Testament saints. They, they were just human beings like us. God made them promises, and they were blessed with those promises and gifts. They weren't conditional. They sinned, you would think that God would have just cut them off from that point on, but you didn't do that. You worked with them and forgave them and you cleansed them. They learned faith and they learned trust and they learned obedience. And Lord, we need the same today. Obedience does not come easy because our sinful nature pulls us away from you and your word. But I pray that you will help us to be people of your word. You're a God of your word. And we need to understand that truth. We praise you and rest upon it. Pray that you'll give us a good week. Be with those that are hurting. Be with the sick. Even those that have been recently just taken to the hospital. This COVID, Lord, is wreaking havoc in our community upon our church family and I pray that you will restore us to good health we just thank you for that be with the grieving, be with Phil and his family, all of his boys and may there be also rejoicing there as we know with regard to Ida absent from the body, present with the Lord and we rejoice in that in Christ's name, Amen